Psalm 102 begins with, it begins with a title that actually isn't part of the psalm, but the title makes us sort of gulp and realize we're going to talk about something that's pretty real here today. The title says, A Prayer of One Afflicted When He Is Faint and Pours Out His Complaint Before the Lord. The title suggests that if you think Christianity is about being happy and problem-free, then you are grossly mistaken. Even Jesus was known as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How would his followers expect an easier path than him? That said, the title talks about affliction and about being faint or overwhelmed. And then when you do, pouring out your complaint before the Lord. And I don't know if you ever do that, do you? To pour out your complaint before the Lord. But I'm just going to say, I do, and I need a minute here. Because I have a long history of complaining to the Lord. And I will just rehearse a brief complaint for you today, because I remember 2021, most of you probably do, it's not that hard, because everyone was enduring a pandemic. We were all reeling from a political nightmare that involved George Floyd and BLM and an election and a raid on the Capitol. We complained about masks. We were just getting around to complaining about vaccines. We were crushed, some of us literally, by an ice storm. The church was struggling to meet ever in ever-changing configurations according to the mandates of the governor. And I think for all of us, 2021 was a hard time and worthy of complaint. But, I'm just getting started. Because for me, 2021 had a few other factors. At the end of February, actually the very day that I uh, cut up the logs that fell on top of my house during the ice storm, I fell and tore my quadriceps tendon above my right knee and found out, some of you remember, I was a Sunday morning and I came to church on crutches and put him right here and uh, pretended that it was normal. I found out later that week that I needed immediate surgery and that resulted in uh, four months at least of physical therapy. And I know that I shouldn't complain because I got out of physical therapy just in time to realize I needed a knee replacement on the other knee. And so later that year, I had 
another knee surgery, my 10th major knee surgery that uh, required another three months of physical therapy. All this while everything else was going on. And so I tell myself, right? I had plenty to complain about. But the reality is whether your complaint is the same as mine or you have a different one, we're all going to have them. We're all going to have something that we share, maybe, pandemics, or something that is unique to you. And the hardest thing about those complaints is not remembering them. The hardest thing is that there doesn't always seem to be a reason why that's happening, does it? It's happening, but why? You don't always have an answer. Sometimes it doesn't look like God even cares about it or that He hears your prayers. So if you have your Bibles open and you look at verse 2, it feels like God hides His face from you when, in fact, it's the worst possible time for Him to hide His face from you. And so what do you do then? What do you do when you have good reason to complain Where do you look to find comfort when you need to find comfort? And there appears to be no comfort on the horizon. What do you do? Well, I think that Psalm 102 will help us there because Psalm 102 holds up for us the permanence and eternality of God, which is a great comfort to those who are afflicted because it provides an assurance that God will finish what He started in you. That God will bring to completion His salvation. Our comfort in life comes not from our circumstances, but from the character of God. His permanence brings hope even to the most despondent person in the most difficult of circumstances. So let's look at Psalm 102, and I, I do want you to have the whole psalm, so I'm going to read it piece by piece here. I, I, I spared Cindy when she read it not to read the first part, because the first part is a bummer, but I don't want you, I don't want you to miss the bummer, because some of you live in the middle of a bummer right now. So Psalm 102, beginning in verse 1. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on a housetop. 
All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither like grass. His description of his suffering is really gripping, isn't it? I mean, it's as bad, it feels as bad as it can be. His suffering affects his eating, it affects his sleeping, it affects his relationship. All of life is colored by the pain. So what do you do when life hurts like that? There are, I think, a couple things to avoid doing. There are a couple extremes that you might stay away from. And both extremes have to do with the story that you end up telling yourself about your pain. So the first extreme is to wallow in self-pity. To whine. To let everyone know how bad it is for you. Some of us are pretty good at that. I practiced before I came and complained to you earlier today. My parents used to talk about some of their children who shall remain nameless as though they were like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh who never saw the bright side of anything but complained and complained and complained. I read the entire Chronicles of Narnia, and Puddleglum was my favorite character. But that's the first extreme to avoid is wallowing in self-pity because the, the more you think about your problems, the more uh, they persist. In fact, I read uh, something just the other day. It said defining yourself by your suffering is an effective way to keep suffering forever. Because it has to do with the story you tell yourself about your life. Either you're not worth a better life or you're so much better than life is treating you that it's not fair and you just rehearse, you get stuck in this loop. And so I want you to notice, though, the psalm doesn't do that. In fact, it stays away because he starts with prayer. The very first thing is, hear my prayer. In prayer, no matter how despondent, no matter how much pain the words are filled with, prayer is not self-pity. Prayer is appealing to someone who can actually help you. And so rather than wallow in self-pity, pray. That's the first extreme. The second extreme is to pretend that it's not that bad. I think there are a lot of us that do this too. It's to rush to some cliche that acts as though the pain is not genuine or you are so spiritual and so strong that it for some reason doesn't hurt you. This too is an untrue story that we tell ourselves. 
Half of this psalm, in fact, is complaint. Half of this psalm is just going over and over and over how hard life is. And so someday you're going to have to come to grips with that. Because he wants us to know that we're not going to minimize it or pretend it's not there, but we're not going to wallow in it either. I think we can all relate to the pain that he describes in these first 11 verses. And if you can't, you will. It's really that simple. Because all of us are going to experience pain that we can't understand at some point in our lives. In fact, some of the reason I say that is because I think this is a psalm in part about growing old. If you recall last week, it was Psalm 101, and Psalm 101 was a, was a pledge of a young man to, to do great, to be full of integrity and to make life count. And now in Psalm 102, we have an old man looking back and saying, yeah, it's been pretty hard. And here's, here are the clues. I think it's an old man's psalm. I, somebody corrected me between service, an old woman's psalm too, if it applies to you. Verse 3 says, his days are like smoke. Or verse 11, the days are like a long shadow. The the sun is setting and night's almost here and you're going to have to face the fact that night is coming. And he rehearses the passing of time as a meditation on God who is timeless. He uses this... uh, the pain that he has in the, in the process of growing old as a way to meditate on a God who doesn't grow old and who doesn't change. And as he begins to meditate on that, he begins to find comfort and hope. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered through all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come, for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. And so he begins to meditate on a God who is eternal while his life is a passing shadow. While his life disappears as smoke, he meditates on a God who remains from generation to generation to generation. And he begins to transition from the pain to the promise, from the hurt to the hope. And so how do you find hope? in times of suffering. How do you find your way through when life is this hard? There are a few keys, I think, to his hope that are uh, registered here in the psalm. One is that his hope is collective. In other words, he is hoping that he is included in something good that is going to happen. 
Part of his hope is that the Lord will have pity on Zion. Zion is the city of God, the city where God was dwelling. And his hope is that God will build up Zion, verse 14. And so as he is hurting and as his life is fading away, he realizes God is going to keep his promise to his people. God is going to be good to Zion. He will show favor Design. And when he does, those who belong to those promises, who belong to the covenant of God, will benefit from the good that God shows to Zion. There is great hope in being included in the promises of God. Now let me just suggest to you that This is so true that we try and build this into our services every single week. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not clear, but we try and communicate that God is telling a story, that God has made promises to his people that he is fulfilling throughout history, and that if you trust him, you have a part in those promises. Okay, we use the word gospel or good news to describe those promises. And the story that God's telling begins at the very beginning in creation where God made everything uh, to be just as he wanted. But then human beings entered the picture and rebelled against God and said, no, thank you, we're going to do it our way. And so then all of the brokenness comes into the world and even the psalmist experiences that. But God is faithful, and he began to promise that he was going to send a redeemer that was going to rescue his people. And there were people along the way who pointed to him, Moses and David and others. We understand that redeemer to be Jesus. And then one day, there will be a great hope in the end that Jesus will return and make everything right. And so the the, the whole story is part of what we think God has promised. And to believe means to enter into that story. Not to tell yourself a story about self-pity or pretending that it doesn't matter, but rather tell yourself a different story that we call the good news. To believe in the gospel. And when you do that, there's great hope that you will be included in that final redemption that God will bring. And so there's great hope in this collective promise of God that his people are part of. Part of the hope mentioned in this part of the psalm is not collective. It's not for everyone, but it's individual because he says, the Lord hears the cry of the destitute. He hears the prayer of the brokenhearted. And so the certainty that God hears your cries offers hope in the midst of tears. And then I think there's even a third part to the hope that's mentioned here, and that is there is hope in the worldwide superiority of God. Notice what it says there 
in verse 18, it says, the nations will fear him and the kings will fear his name. The nations and the kings will fear him. The most powerful people in the world will recognize that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is very much the same language that we have at the end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 21, uh, the same language is used to, to, to promise us of the great hope that God will bring. Revelation 21 verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there'll be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. In other words, the the end that this psalm is describing is the very end that God is promising to His people so that to be included in those promises is to have hope. And then he continues there in verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height, from heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when people gather together in the kingdoms to worship the Lord. So he wants this to be recorded, to be written down. What does he want to be written down? I think, first of all, he wants to record the awful nature of his affliction. Let's not pretend that it's not bad. Write it down. He also wants to write down that God looks down from his holy height and hears prayer. I want to write it down that God hears prayer. Why does he want to write both those things down? So that a generation yet to be created might worship. The generation yet to be created might praise the Lord. Now, I want you to do a little math here. This is an old psalm written a long time ago. You weren't born. You are the generation yet to be born that he wrote this for so that you would remember, yes, life's hard, and yes, God is good, and he hears prayer. He wants both the affliction and God's hearing of prayer to remind people that God is in heaven worthy to be worshiped. There may be more to be said there, but this is a long psalm. So look at verse 23. He has broken my strength mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same. And your years have no end. The children 
of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Isn't that interesting? He begins this section with his suffering again. He never gets very far from his pain. None of us ever do. Because it's part of life. He doesn't forget it or pretend it's not real. Instead, he goes back to it again and again, and it reminds him to pray. He doesn't get very far away from his suffering, but he also doesn't get very far away from his prayer in the midst of his suffering. And as he prays, he rehearses again the permanence and eternality of God. It says, verse 25, that God laid the foundation of the world a long time ago, so eternity passed. God was there and laid the foundation of the earth. And then verse 26 says, He will be there when they all wear out. Christian mentioned that you can look out at creation and enjoy it and rejoice, and you can. And we're coming on a time now when the leaves are starting to dry out and fall from the tree, and we're being reminded that, yes, in fact, things wear out. Life is hard. And once things all wear out, finally and for good, God will still be there. So from eternity past to eternity future, God is still there. Verse 27 tells us not only is he still there, he remains the same, and his years have no end. So the thing that you can count on when everything changes, the thing that you can count on when everything is painful is the fact that God is still present with you, and he does not change. And so he winds up by saying this very fact, that God is eternal, gives you security and stability when you belong to the Lord. And you'll notice how he anchors that there in verse 28. Those who belong to the Lord. Those who are, in fact, part of his family. The children of your servants shall dwell secure and their offspring be established. The promise is for those who belong to the Lord. And so that's that's good. There's hope in suffering for sure, but how do you know? How do you know God's going to do this? How do you know there just isn't an old poem that we read on a Sunday? How do you think God would go about doing this if he was going to do it? So how do you know he's going to do it and how would he do it if he was going to do it? Well, I think both of those questions are picked up and answered in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews answers those questions, how is God going to do it, and will he actually do it? It answers both of those questions by quoting Psalm 102. It's picked up in the New Testament, and when he does, he applies it 
to Jesus. The book of Hebrews begins with the glory of Jesus. That if you want to know who God is, all you need to do is look at Jesus. If you want to figure out how God does things, look at Jesus. That's the way Hebrews starts. And so in the introduction, in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, he says this when he quotes Psalm 102. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They perish, but you remain. They'll all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now, the interesting thing is that he's not saying God will, or God made this in the beginning. He says the Lord made this in the beginning. And when you see that in the New Testament, it's talking about Jesus. So the, the, um, the writer of Hebrews says Psalm 102 is about what God is doing through Jesus. What Psalm 102 is about, it's about the story God is writing that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. After all, it was Jesus who suffered in ways that he could not explain. The most unexplainable and undeserved afflictions in the history of the world belong to Jesus. And it turns out it was those afflictions that are the way that God will provide this security for his children. It is through the suffering of Jesus that God can deliver his people from their suffering. And so the writer of Hebrews says, you, Lord, were there in the beginning laying the foundation of the world. And you will be there when it's all rolled up. And in the meantime, you don't change. Christ lived and died and rose again and now lives forever and will one day return to right all wrongs and to wipe away all tears and to heal all wounds. In other words, the story that we believe God is telling in the gospel is applied in Psalm 102 and Hebrews directly to those of us who suffer in this life. When we don't understand what's going on, we know that God does. And you may not understand your suffering. You may not be able to understand why this is happening. But you can understand the story that you fit into. I mentioned before that we try and rehearse that story every week when we gather together in some uh, form or another. But it's rehearsed right here in this psalm, isn't it? The gospel is right here. Because it tells us God made the world. That he formed it like he wanted it formed. It was perfect in its inception. It tells us that brokenness has entered into the world and into the life of the person writing this poem. And that that is a rebellion, a result of the rebellion against God. But it also hints to us that God in his love has sent a redeemer. And the writer of Hebrews tells us it's Jesus. 
in that Jesus is the one that not only reconciles people to God, but lives eternally and will return so that all of the uh, pain in this world might be um, repaired. And that he can restore a suffering world and bring a broken people back into joy. And so, the invitation that Psalm 102 has for us, especially when life is hard, is to recognize the story that God is telling, to actually believe the gospel. Not just to give it lift service as religion, not just to say that you need to believe the gospel to get saved and go to heaven, but to recognize that believing the gospel day by day by day, that God is writing a story in this world that brings a Redeemer who will one day make all things right, that is the great source of hope for those who are suffering. And so when you recognize yourself as part of that story, Yes, that's what I believe. That's for me. You will always have hope. You may always have pain, but you will always have hope. Let me pray for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, we we do long to have hope in the midst of pain. We don't want to pretend. We don't want to go about this, our lives, as though Um, we're not dealing with reality, but Father, we do need to trust you to help us through our suffering, to give us comfort in our pain, and most of all, to give us grace that we might trust in Jesus so that his redemption will count for us, and that we can have hope that we're included in your promise, that you'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so we long for that day, Lord, will you come quickly. Amen.